Yesterday was the FA Cup final, and next Sunday we'll see the conclusion of the Premier League season. And with 370 matches already completed and almost 1,000 goals scored, the final 10 games will all be played simultaneously at 4pm next Sunday, with both the league title and the final Champions League space still potentially to be decided. Now, while I do not particularly follow football, I am cursed to be descended from a long line of extremely passionate Tottenham Hotspur supporters. Following any team can be an emotional roller coaster, but Spurs fans suffer more than most. A fate captured perfectly by Swedish author Frederick Backman in the novel Anne Marie was here. You said your father supports Tottenham. If it's not too much trouble then, what does that mean? If you support Tottenham, you always give more love than you get back, she says. I assume what you mean by that then is that it's a bad team. The corner of Banks' mouth bounce up. Tottenham is the worst kind of bad team because they're almost good. They always promise they're going to be fantastic. And then they make you hope. So you go on loving them, and they carry on finding more and more innovative ways of disappointing you. Tottenham have just two more opportunities to either delight or disappoint their long-suffering fans, playing Burnley in one and a half hours' time, and finally, Norwich City at 4pm next Sunday. Two of the very worst teams in the Premiership, which would, to any other team, promise an easy end to the season. But Tottenham already lost to Burnley 1-0 back in February. But after, putting, uh, after beating Arsenal on Thursday, there is still just about a mathematical possibility that Tottenham could finish above arch-rivals Arsenal and qualify for that final Champions League place. You see, for Spurs supporters, it's exactly that kind of hope that kills you. Many years ago, Spurs were playing another particularly significant and nail-biting match, which my uncle, a fanatical Tottenham supporter and season ticket holder, could not watch live. This was back in those days when he had to conspire with my grandfather to tape the match on a VHS cassette and then studiously avoid any possible leak of the result all the way on his commute back from London. And then finally, having successfully dodged all TV and radio spoilers and anticipating a thrilling evening, he went to collect the tape. And as my grandfather passed over the recording, he promised that his lips were sealed as to the final score, except he winked conspiratorially. He was going to love it. And with those four words, all the excitement of the match, the highs, the lows, the thrills, the anticipation, the fear and the tension were ruined. Spoiler alert, no sports fan, and definitely no Spurs fan, wants certainty. Otherwise, we would just support Man City. There is no heart-pounding, nail-biting jeopardy in a penalty shootout and no exquisite tension in a tight VAR decision when you already know the final outcome. 
Live sport thrives on the almost unbearable but ultimately thrilling excitement of watching your team win or lose in real time. But if true sports fans avoid spoilers, some people actually seek to spoil every ending deliberately for themselves. My daughter, Millie, always reads the last page and sometimes the entire final chapter of a book before reading the rest. And she's not alone, so much so that the phenomena was subject of a study by the University of California at San Diego last year, which surprisingly and somewhat controversially concluded that contrary to all obvious logic and popular wisdom, far from spoiling books, the enjoyment of reading is actually enhanced when you already know the ending. So this morning, given it's scientifically proven that spoilers decrease sporting anxiety and increase enjoyment, let us turn together to one of the very final pages of the Bible where we discover not just how the story of the Bible, but spoiler alert, how the history of the world will end. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This first more descriptive part of John's prophecy is, as we spoke about earlier, somewhat limited by the language, culture and metaphors of the time. And so it contains references and imagery which require just a little bit of unpacking if we're to grasp fully the vision that John is struggling to put into words. When John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, we hear lots of echoes of the Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 65. But John's vision does not point upwards whimsically towards some remote, idealized, ethereal heaven in the clouds, but vividly describes the unfolding reality of a new physical heaven and earth here. You see, crucially, the particular word new that John uses actually means not just new, but new in quality, new in type. This is not just a new for old, like for like, repaired or restored earth, but a completely different, a totally new form of heaven and earth. An earth John describes with no sea, but those with beachfront properties or who enjoy messing about in boats need not be alarmed because John is not writing of the sea as the place that we now identify with buckets and spades and seaside holidays. But in Jewish literature and throughout Revelation, the sea was used instead as a symbol of spiritual chaos, a metaphor for human rebellion and a warning of mortal danger. In Revelation 13 verse 1, John describes the sea as the spiritual source of the satanic beast. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Rather then than containing no literal 
large bodies of water or sandy beaches, John is describing a far more important and poignant and profound change, that on this new earth there will be no more fear, no more chaos, no more death, and no more evil. And then John sees this holy city, a new Jerusalem, some 20 years after the temple and city have been destroyed, its citizens massacred and displaced. And so this new city is not just a picture of a bustling metropolis, a crowded home full of activity, but for God's people it's a picture of a sanctuary, a fortress and a temple where the safety, security and sanctity of this exiled and abused nation would be fully and finally assured. For God's presently persecuted people are likened here to a bride, immaculately prepared and perfectly presented for her husband on her wedding day. In 104 days, I will walk my daughter Millie down the aisle here, and standing right where I am now, she and Sam will exchange their vows. Millie collected her stunning wedding dress just a few weeks ago, and it's perfect. And she and Sam have made together all kinds of exciting plans and preparations for every moment and every detail of that special day. There will be balloons and flowers and cake and dancing and tears of laughter and joy as we celebrate together them starting their life together. And John says that the final day will be a wedding where you are the bride, where I am the bride, where we are all part of the bride. The church is God's carefully chosen, perfectly presented and prepared bride. What a glorious and subversive image for a downtrodden people to hear, for an occupied nation to long for, and a persecuted religion to hope in. That 2,000 years ago, God saw them and today sees me and sees you as his perfect bride. But today I want us to focus on verse 3, where John moves on from these complex visions that he saw to the simple promises that he heard. Because the most crucial difference between the old and the new heaven and earth is not what cars we will drive or what the buildings will look like, but in the clear promise spoken from the throne regarding who else dwells there. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The new heaven the new earth, the new Jerusalem, is therefore not just mankind's eternal home, our physical home, but a place where God will rest his presence among us, his people, forevermore. That's our sermon in a sentence this morning. Verse 3, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
You see, I think that fabulous word, dwelling, evokes an intimate, lingering sense of belonging rather than just merely existing or surviving. And what could be a more intimate vision of the Almighty God as our loving Father than him wiping away every tear from our eye? as his presence blots out every stain, lifts up every stumble, and takes away all pain and all fear and all sickness and death from this former fallen creation, because this brand new earth will be his dwelling place and ours. Revelation 21, then, is the ultimate fulfillment of another glorious vision from Ezekiel chapters 40 through to 48, where taken to a high mountain, Ezekiel also sees this exact same new city. And we can read in really right, quite painful, painstaking detail, chapter after chapter of details and specifications about the city and its gates and the priests and the temple, but only one detail truly matters. And it's the one we can hear declared from the throne here, because spoiler alert, you can understand the whole book of Ezekiel and our passage today from the name of that city that's revealed in the final four words of the book. Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 35. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. And that is indeed to be the name of this new city. For that's what marks out the truly transformational difference between the new heaven and the new earth. The Lord is there. What was promised in Ezekiel's vision is not just echoed by John, but declared by God himself from the throne. Verse 5. I am making everything new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You see, spoiler alert, the Alpha of in the beginning was the word will ultimately end inevitably conclude with the Omega, where the book of life will end with God dwelling forever amongst his people. It's a moment where God himself says, it is done, and will once and for all again declare that it is good. Reading Revelation, it's easy to get bogged down in the biblical exegesis, the eschatological details of the end of days and all those overlapping and elaborate visions of demons and dragons and lose sight of the very simple truth that, spoiler alert, we have read together today the final page of history, the page where God declares he will be victorious and guarantees that his dwelling place will be among us, his children, forever. That old separation of God and the angels will end, and instead both heaven and earth will be made new, made whole, made complete, and we will be joined forever. You see, John wrote all of this not that we might know exactly what the future will look like, but that our present triumphs and trials might be put into proper context and our fears comforted. The simple truth 
and ultimate spoiler of Revelation 21 is knowing the last page of history, our joy and confidence today can be transformed by the certainty of our hope in what is to come. Because our reading today isn't some sort of complex prophecy of tomorrow's world that predicts when we're going to get flying cars or better Wi-Fi, but it's just a simple promise of God's ultimate faithfulness. And John intends for us each to take strength and comfort from that right now, today. Knowing how the Bible, how history, and how this present age will end is not a spoiler, but an enabler that reveals the crowning revelation of the glory of God on whose love and promises and forgiveness our strength for today and our hope for tomorrow ultimately rests. I was going to keep this shirt on for the Burnley game uh, later on, but on the way here, Zoe said that I'd better not because it might be unlucky. That's the level of fear and paranoia that fans are reduced to. And it's odd because Spurs haven't lost a game since I bought this shirt. Although it's only been a week. <laughs> but whatever Harry Kane, Hyungmin Son and Antonio Conte do in the days ahead, victory has nothing to do with luck. Because victory is assured. It is guaranteed for us if we put our trust and faith today and every day in the certain promise of Revelation 21, which God himself instructed us to write it down, that we might know, that we might have confidence and experience joy and receive God's love in abundance today and every day. For when we do, we can face all uncertainty, every single one of life's penalty shootouts and dodgy VAR decisions with confidence, because there need be no fear, jeopardy, or anxiety when you already know life's final score, when you've already read history's final page. And spoiler alert, John says, you're going to love the result. Because whatever the mighty Tottenham do this afternoon, ultimately, even Spurs supporters can always know one thing for certain. After extra time is over, when the very final whistle of all blows, God will be victorious. We will be his, and he will be here. Amen. <laughs>